Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Molly. Today we're talking about whether it is possible to fall in love at first sight. Mm -hmm. Such a cliche. Love at first sight. Everyone's probably thinking, well, I know the answer and it is no. But anecdotally, I think a lot of us have maybe experienced something akin to love at first sight. Ooh, Kristen, may I share? Like someone speaking from experience. Do you want a story hour? I am speaking from experience. Tell us. Well, uh, I distinctly remember the first time uh, he is now, he is now an not in a relationship with me anymore, but okay. we, we do still care each other, about each other very deeply. Uh, the first time I saw one of my ex-boyfriends, um, I remember being at a very crowded show and I stood up and it was in a small, a small venue and I stood up on a chair or something like that or a bench or something to get a better view. Mm-hmm. And I looked across the room and I saw this man. And I'd never seen this man before, which was odd because it was a group of people, a lot of familiar faces, but I'd never seen him before. He was Mm -hmm. talking to people I knew. And I just remember seeing him and thinking, he looks like no one else I have ever seen before. And my, isn't he just handsome? I wish I knew him. I wish I knew him. And I didn't talk to him that night. You know, I just kind of tucked that little thought away. And then lo and behold, um, he had seen me as in similar situations saying, who is that lass? I've never seen her before. Not that he talked like that at all. <laughs> um, but yeah, then come to find out we meet each other. We'd had these experiences. We had seen each other from afar and, you know, something ticked off and in, inside of our little, little fluttering hearts. And we shared a beautiful romance. For a long time. And I would say that's the closest thing that I can think of to love at first sight. Wow. That is the sweetest story ever. <laughs> it's pretty sweet. I and that man good. was John Hamm. That man was John Hamm. That was, you know, it was a lifetime ago before yeah. he got married and became Don Draper on Mad Men. Uh, and he, you know, but if you've ever had a man like Don Draper say, well, you know, and then I just saw her. Yeah. It reminds me of the first time I met Kermit the Frog. You thought you were totes? It's yeah. hot. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, love at first sight. But, the, but then my question was, well, you know, can we call that love at first sight? Or is that just attraction at first sight? Yeah. I don't know. But either way, you don't need much time at all to say, you know what? I'd like to see that person again. Yeah. That person rings my little bell. And people are saying, you know, if we have varying definitions of what ring that bell means, then, you know, then I think it's perfectly possible to fall in love at first sight. And surprise, surprise, who are we going to mention first? None other than Helen Fisher, anthropologist. We're not going to talk about her too long, though. Helen Fisher says that three minutes is all you need, all the time you need, to know whether or not somebody's going to stick around. It makes kind of a good case for speed dating. Yeah. Because that's how long I think you talk to a person on a speed date. And she's saying, yes, you just need that three minutes to know whether this person will be in your life for a long time or not. Because it's that kind of instant attraction, chemistry. You can, your body's do, doesn't have a whole lot of characteristics and qualities without you even knowing it in yeah. that three minutes. Just when you're making small talk, you mm-hmm. are getting the clues that will let you know 
whether this is a good person. But we've got to remember that Helen Fisher trades a lot, traces a lot of our behavior back to our evolutionary forefathers right. when our motives were to have a baby, yeah. a healthy baby who could continue on the race. So a lot of this stuff is based on that idea that we still subconsciously seek out good partners. So mm-hmm. you can buy into that or not, but according to her, our brains have been rewired. So in that three minutes, that's kind of what we're on the lookout for. Right. Cause it goes back to, you know, producing a healthy child, but also the fact that when, you know, way back in evolutionary times, we weren't living very long. No. So you kind of needed to get busy pretty quick. Three minutes back then was like a lifetime. <laughs> yeah. Not really, but I mean, that's what she's saying. You don't have very long. You don't have like these five years to date. You've got, you know, the five years should be spent having the child and raising mm-hmm. it. So you've only got three minutes. What can you suss out in that three minutes that will let you know if this person is good to father your child? Well, some scholars think that we are building our brain is building a love map yeah, of all the these different term. yes a love map of all of these different qualities and i think that uh i think it'd be interesting to kind of tick off a lot of these physical attributes that might seem superficial to pay attention to but actually are pretty good indicators of someone's reproductive health and whether or not they'd be a good genetic match to you for instance a heterosexual lady might check out a man's chin, Don Draper's jawline, for instance, and be uh, see it as a sign of attractiveness because testosterone levels influence the jawlines and yes. chin development. And same for women with the eyes. The shape, mm-hmm. the smaller shape of a woman's eyes is determined by estrogen in her body. So that's a sign of reproductive fitness to the gent. Facial symmetry. Symmetry is huge. We've heard, and this is probably no new news. The more symmetrical uh, people are, the more attractive they're generally judged. Because it's a it's a sign that your genes are good. It's a sign that your genes, you know, split just right to make you not deformed. Basically, waist to hip ratio. The mm-hmm. old the old hourglass for the ladies, and this has to do with uh, fat deposits. Yeah, uh, where your fat is deposited on your body determines your waist to hip ratio, and those fat deposits are also influenced by your sex hormones. So, women with a waist to hip ratio of 0.7, basically meaning that you got a, a little waist and larger hips. It's more desirable to men, whereas the waist-to-hip ratio in men is going to be a little bit bigger mm-hmm. because typically curvaceous men is not the ideal. It's more of the, you know, the broad-shouldered and then, uh, what else? How do you describe <laughs> it? Broad, I just get stuck on the shoulders. Which, again, is another testosterone trait. So that's why you're getting stuck on them, Kristen. It's mm-hmm. evolution. Yeah. And they, you know, they did um, studies that showed like every Miss America, you know, since time began has had the 0.7 waist to hip ratio. So these, even though you don't walk around going, uh, her waist to hip ratio sucks. These are what they call the universal ideals of beauty. They go into every culture and show pictures of people to, you know, test subjects. And by and large, these are the things people find attractive because scholars think it's linked to reproductive fitness. Because you know what good hip, big hips are for, bigger hips. Birth and babies. Better baby. Pop them out, y'all. So, do your duties, ladies. <laughs> so that's why, you know, you don't want to walk around thinking that it's your hips that, although hips don't lie. So um, you don't want to ra- walk around thinking that these evolutionary ideas of good baby making hips are what people are attracted uh-huh. to. But 
your brain can't help but go there. Now, let's talk about the idea of pheromones. Okay. Because these are brought up a lot in, uh, <laughs> reminds me of Anchorman, where one of the characters has the, uh, the Paul Rudd character has that pheromone, um, <laughs> panther cologne. Yeah. Just hilarious. But, um, just this idea that we can subconsciously smell a good partner. Mm-hmm. And while, um, humans don't really emit and detect actual pheromones in that sense. Very controversial idea, whether we do or not. Right. But we can, there is a, there is an idea that we are sort of sniffing out genes. And there's a study, a very famous study that we've mentioned probably more than once on the podcast about sweaty undershirts. Yeah. Uh, they did a kind of blindfolded test where women, smelled men's sweaty undershirts and rated their attractiveness. Mm-hmm. And the men who were the most genetically dissimilar to them, which is a good thing. You don't want someone who has the same genes as you because that'd be your brother. Yeah. Hence incest. Um, <laughs> the ones with the most genetic uh, diversity were the most attractive. Yeah. So there's some thought that we can sniff out signals from other people. And we talked about this with uh, do gal pals sync their menstrual cycles. Mm-hmm. You know, there was some evidence or suggestion that you can sniff out when it's a good time to have a baby based right. on when your lady friends are having their periods. And so they're saying that, you know, it may be not, maybe it's not love at first sight. It's love at first sniff. Right. Just the idea that even without seeing someone, even without all those visual visual clues, our bodies are still equipped to signal which may or may not be a good mate for us, a reproductive mate. This is all about this all goes back to very, you know, reproductive oriented mating. Because love is a fairly new concept, as we've talked about before. That's right. Because you did have to mate, you had to have a kid, you couldn't be you couldn't be perfectly one hundred percent in love with this person. They couldn't meet they couldn't meet all the qualities on your laundry list. Right. But they're saying, you know, if we have built up our love maps now in this modern age where we include things like, you know, Sense of humor and um, what else could be on a laundry list? Well educated. Well educated. Plays tennis. Puts the toilet seat back down. Yes. So while we have these things on our love map, they're saying that under those, you know, traits, we've got these evolutionary signals there mm-hmm. too. And in that first meeting, that three minute meeting, your brain, without you knowing it, is just running through the love map, checking off which ones this guy seems to meet. And you're using all sorts of clues. Like you said, well educated, Kristen. Mm-hmm. Let's say you meet a guy and he's wearing a stethoscope and scrubs. Right away, your brain probably assumes med that school. That is Zach Braff. Educated scrubs. <laughs> and, and you loved Garden State, so your brain remembers ah, that. Ah, no. And, uh, you like the shins, so that's cool. Um, 90s jokes. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, your brain is doing all this really fast. If you dated a doctor before and it didn't go well, when you see another doctor, when you go from Zach Braff to George Clooney in his ER days, your brain's like, whoa, that last doctor didn't work for us too well. But then my brain would go, well, it was Zach Braff, so <laughs> give Clooney a chance. Uh, but let's, Zach Braff. let's talk about something, though, called assortative mating, because okay. we've talked a lot about dissimilarities genetics-wise, mm-hmm. but uh, scholars also think that we tend to gravitate toward people who are, in a lot of ways... Just like us. Yes. And this is something referred to as a sortative mating. Right. And so in that, you know, first, hi, how are you? Yes, you're even just sussing out their voice. Your brain's going through things on yeah. their voice. But let's say they start talking about um, 
Shakespeare. And oh my gosh, you've happened to love Shakespeare. Oh, me too. Wow. And yeah, and oh. you guys both like pizza. I love, do you like pepperoni as well? I do like movies. pepperoni. Yeah, I love movies too. So these facts that you have things, these, these small things that are in common, you know, anyone in a relationship knows that those small things can yeah. sometimes really make a huge difference because you start having pizza and Shakespeare one, night. One slice of pizza could lead to the whole pie. Oh. That is a card waiting to happen. I'm going to yes. sell that to Hallmark. <laughs> um, so yeah, just these really small, stupid things that you sense, uh, you know, someone like you mm-hmm. and that is attractive to us. And you know what also helps? What? Ovulation. <laughs> if you're, you know, if your fallopian tubes are, are shooting a, shooting a little egg down there, <laughs> your chances of, uh, Seeing a dude who'll strike your fancy way higher. Again, because of, be drawn uh, to you. because of the, uh, need to mate, even if you don't necessarily want a kid at that, that moment. We talked about that on the, uh, you know, subliminal signs mm-hmm. of ovulation and the ways women and men are attracted to each other during that time of the month. Um, but yeah, it's kind of weird that all these factors have to be in line, which is why, you know, maybe love at first sight seems so rare because how often is it that you see a perfect genetic specimen who's not too similar, right? Who is meeting all your love map qualifications while you're ovulating? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's really hard to do. Well, yeah, and and they have to look back at you. Yes, this was one of the uh, most interesting concepts with this whole love at first sight thing. Is that we think a lot about we like to frame it as this quest for the other, mm-hmm. whereas when it really comes down to it. It's kind of a quest for, it's a more narcissistic quest for validation of yourself. Yeah. Because, you know, to take your story, Kristen, both of you saw each other. Right. He saw you, you saw him. And we, but we weren't looking back at each other either time. Okay. Well, see now, let's say you had locked eyes. The chances that you would have talked that night probably go up like a thousand percent. Well, certainly, you know, if he had looked and seen me while I was looking at him, he because would have crossed through the sea of people. He might have, because that's what one researcher said, was that what we are most attracted to is someone who was attracted to us. Yeah. And so if, you know, if that fellow had seen you looking back, he would have had that sort of, you know, nudge of, um, you know, a self-esteem boost. Like, yeah, yeah she does like me. She's checking me like, out. Okay, maybe she's interested. Maybe I've got a shot. Body language starts playing a factor. You could have been, you know, sending the eyes to each other, the crazy love eyes. <laughs> and it might just look like crazy <laughs> eyes when I send them. Well, yeah, that's a common problem. <laughs> um, but yeah, they're saying that, you know, that most important factor is someone who's going to look back at you and, um, you know, reaffirm all the things you find attractive about yourself. So if you do find someone attractive, they say that's when you got to start playing that old body language game like, hey, Come over here. And uh, there's also um, this idea of an attractiveness halo, too. If you see someone, you know, if, Molly, I'm sure if you if you ran to John Hamm and he was like, Hello, Molly, I love your podcast. Mm-hmm. You, oh, I'd be sold right away. You would be sold because we will also, if we find someone physically attractive without knowing much about them at all, we will fill in the blanks of their characteristics and just kind of assume that they are going to match us personality wise. Yeah. And so th- I think that's where you could start to get into the situation of, is that love or is it something right. else? Right. Because uh, we think that love can be based on knowing someone completely and everything minus that halo. But you know what? Here's another Hallmark card for you. 
can't put a time limit on love. You can't put a time limit on love. Or, uh, you know, we also have to remember the social constructs of, you know, love and relationships and dating and what we are told is and isn't this or that. Yeah. I mean, we're told we have to date someone for, you know, a set number of dates before we could say, I love you. Yeah. You know, if your brain knows, your brain knows. And a lot of neuroscience has been done on this to say that, uh, you know, Helen Fisher gave this three minutes. One neuroscientist gave it 0.2 seconds. What? She said that's how long it takes for those love hormones to flood your brain when you see someone. That's barely a glance. How could you even know what they look like for 0.2 seconds? You know, that brain works fast. It went through your love map like that. You saw a good match and your brain is already feeling all the, the chemical rush of hormones and it is being rewired for love. So, you know, we have to kind of let go, I think, of uh, that that uh, certain date rule before mm-hmm. you can feel love. Sometimes it seems, if the science holds up, you can feel love. And as such as a, as a statistics and neuroscience nut as I can be, needing, needing facts to be provable, I will say the fact huh, that the moment, the split second, I don't know how many seconds it was, of just seeing that person... Mm-hmm. Is such a, a, a clear memory in my in my brain, so clear. I mean, I remember everything about it. Mm-hmm. Remember exactly where I was um, and what he was wearing, all of it. That something happened. Yeah, you know, it makes me. It makes me. I'm, I don't know that I believe a hundred percent, but well, and the fact that it did turn into a relationship, I think um, that lo- love at first sight can be a backward looking phenomenon. Mm-hmm. I mean, if nothing had happened, you would have just been like, oh, that was oh. a cool moment. But, the yeah, fact, but I wouldn't have remembered it. Yeah, but the fact that you actually got together afterward, it made a nice part to your love story. Like, right. oh, you know, here's how we met. And by the way, we both knew as soon as we saw each other, something was going on. Yeah. And whereas, you know, if let's say a relationship ended really badly, people who might be telling that story later would probably forget that part about the love at first sight. Mm-hmm. So it's something that kind of can stand there while you are in a relationship with that person, I think. So we want to know what you all think out there. Is love at first sight possible? Has it happened to you? Send your gushy stories our way. <laughs> Mom, Steph at HowStuffWorks.com. And in the e- meantime, let's read an email or two. I have one here signed Minneapolis Mom. And it is about our podcast on doulas and midwives. And she writes, I was thrilled to listen to your podcast about this because I always hope that women will go into the birthing process being as informed as possible. I had my first daughter in a hospital with a certified nurse wife, nurse midwife, two doulas, one was in training, and my husband. Although I had a wonderful and supportive certified nurse mer- midwife at the birth, the hospital rotates the OBs and CNMs so you never know who will be on duty when you deliver. Having a doula present meant that I could rely on a consistent nurturing person to support me. My doulas rubbed my back, kept me hydrated, helped me breathe, and most of all had unwavering faith in me. I was able to birth a nine and a half pound baby with no drugs or medical interventions. My second daughter was a planned home birth. I had her in a birthing tub and was supported by two midwives, one in training, a doula, and my husband. It was truly the most beautiful, peaceful, and fulfilling moments in my life. I felt like my daughter was brought into the world surrounded by gentleness and love. I realized that home births are not for everyone, but as I mentioned above, it is always my hope that women will take the time to truly inform themselves about the different options. Well, I've got an email here from Natasha about our beer podcast. And Natasha, you're welcome because in parentheses you wrote, I'd love it if you read this on the show. <laughs> Dreams do come true. On um, She says, for the longest time I drank a certain brand of beer because it tasted good. Then I started seeing these horrible commercials with tightly clothed, big, busty women in it that behaved like they didn't have a brain cell in their heads, and it just irked me so much I quit drinking it. 
Then I discovered Sam Adams, which has commercials about the factory, what products they use, and who makes the beer. That shows me that they have so much pride in their beer that they don't need to do marketing that the others do. Plus, it tastes so good. And ever since then, I've been a Sam Adams girl. Also, I haven't had anyone comment or tell me that I'm unladylike for drinking beer because, believe it or not, my six-foot-tall, 200-pound, work-out-for-an-hour-every-day ex-Marine older brother drinks, get this, wine coolers, and I dare someone to call him girly. So if you've got an email to send our way, the address is momstuff at howstuffworks.com. You can also hit us up on Facebook and on Twitter. You can follow us there at momstuffpodcast. And finally, you can read our blog during the week. It's Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. To learn more about the podcast, click on the podcast icon in the upper right corner of our homepage. The HowStuffWorks iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?